Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here. Today's episode of Full Potential Now is the second in our three-part miniseries, California Addiction Diaries. Part 2, Punk Rock Woman. In this special collaboration with award-winning filmmaker and director Steve Balderson, we'll hear unique stories of addiction and recovery from the Golden State. We'll also hear expert commentary from licensed mental health and addiction counseling veteran and Full Potential Now host, Ted Isidore. Don't go anywhere. I like to know about where people come from, you know, about how they grew up, because even just a little bit of a backstory so that we can get an idea to paint a picture of who this person is. What was so interesting about this particular woman who was involved with punk rock and rock and roll, and I had no idea that this even existed as a part of her life. I, I just thought she was a crazy wild party girl still. And when I learned that she has been living in sobriety for many, many, many years, I was sort of like, interesting, I would have never guessed. So I'm born and raised um, a native Angelina from Los Angeles. And um, I grew up in a place called Pacoima, which is in deep, deep, deep in the San Fernando Valley. And um, it's a bad neighborhood. I grew up you know, surrounded. I had three older brothers and they were all in gangs. And my parents were um, divorced by the time I was three. So there was no parental supervision at all. My brothers were older and they took over the house and they were all in gangs and car clubs. So our house was like a a clubhouse. So, you know, any kid, any good kid on the block wasn't allowed to come to our house. And all, it was a hangout for all the bad kids. And our, literally, our garage was a chop shop, which, if you don't know what that is, it's, you know, a lot of stolen cars come through there and they get chopped and painted and lowered and cherried and, and then, then resold. So that was what was going on in the, in the garage. And there was a pool table in there. And it was just, it was just a game clubhouse. And my mom was out working three jobs or, you know, going out. Uh, you know, with her girlfriends at night. And my dad was, he would show up every once in a while. But no, there was never anyone around to say, you can't do this, or you shouldn't do this, or maybe you should do this. None whatsoever. So, um, and I loved it. I thought it was great. But at a certain age, a lot of my friends started dying. And I had this, you know, realization that I wanted more for myself. Was it crazy for you, substance-wise, at that time? Not yet. No, I hadn't found what I was looking for. I guess I missed a big chunk, and this is really important, actually. When I was about seven, my mom came home and said that my brother had been sent home from the health office with a note saying that he needed to do something about his weight. So my mom, being uh, you know, a 60s mom, went took him to a diet doctor and came back and put us all on pharmaceutical speed put us all on quote-unquote diet pills and i was on pharmaceutical speed from the time i was seven till the time i was 15. and the only reason why we stopped is because it was outlawed i didn't i i had no idea well that's not true i had no idea when i was seven 
And by the time I was 12, I, I picked up on it. And then I started selling it in school. I still didn't know what it was, but I was selling it in school, like a little drug dealer. And um, then when I was 15, my mom, you know, she said, look, we're going to go to the doctor. And, you know, I want you to go in there. I want you to go in there and say this, this and that. And then, you know, we'll go. And she put me in a, a mini skirt and go-go booth. And you know, she really dressed me up. And I went in there and I said to the doctor, I said this, this and that. And he looked at me and he said, absolutely not. And I, 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 could, I could feel the, the power in what he was saying. I didn't really understand. And I said, why not? And he said, because you're chemically dependent. Again, I didn't know what that meant, but I could feel that, that was a, it was a bad thing. And we went home together and proceeded to kick an eight-year speed habit together. And that was brutal. Because she went through, at the same time of this horrible, this, this unimaginable and uninstructed detox that we were doing on our own, she, also, she proceeded to go through menopause. And that was, that was hardcore for me. Because I would wake up to her trying to kill me in my sleep. And then I'd spend the day trying to talk her out of killing herself. What's fascinating about this story, I mean, I've never even heard this before, to be honest with you, Steve. The idea that her mom, like, she was being given speed at the age of seven. Yeah. I mean, I've never, man, I've listened to, I've probably spent in the room with an excess of 20,000 people with alcohol or drug addictions. I've never heard a story like that. Honestly, I didn't like taking the speed, but... My mom gave it to me, and I would have pretty much done anything my mom said to do, or I would have taken anything she would have given me. And so I just kept taking it because my mom told me to take it. But my brother, who had been taking it, he lost the weight, and he just stopped on his own. Which, and I, I, I say this because he has, he didn't have the propensity uh, for addiction or alcoholism, and I do, and I did, and I mm. am. So that's the difference. Because I don't believe you become an alcoholic or you become a drug addict. I believe we all, you know, I have the propensity to do that. I have the addictive gene in me. Well, one thing that uh, did come up in this particular interview that didn't in the, in the other ones so far uh, was the idea that she had a gene which was the addictive gene and that her brother didn't. And I wondered if that truly is scientifically, uh, is it a gene? Is it a, is it a disposition? Is it a chemical imbalance in a person that can be scientifically proven or is it learned behavior? Oh, Steve, the nature versus nurture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I've been in tons of research on this. They always look at what's the genetic influence and what's the environmental influence that will potentially lead somebody down the path of addiction. And so when it when all is said and done, the research varies, but it's usually they can account for genetics by about anywhere from 38% upwards to 62 or 64%. So a lot of people generally that talk about the genetic influence of addiction will probably round things off and say roughly you're a 50-50 shot. Meaning, if your mom or dad were alcoholic or drug addicted, or you have 
direct blood relatives from them, aunts and uncles. And this would have to be legit. They were legitimately had an alcohol or drug addiction. Because sometimes people will kind of misconstrue it. They say, oh, that person's an alcoholic. It turns out they really weren't. But if this was actually legit, then you're a 50-50 shot that you'll have an alcohol that you'll develop an alcohol and or drug addiction during the course of your lifetime. Interesting. So a lot of people will kind of go off the deep end and say, well, I have like eight of the risk factors. I'm just going to be one. There's no way out. Um, I've met plenty of people that have the deck stacked against them, but somehow it doesn't turn out that way. Yeah. How old, how old were you when you left home? 18. I, I, when I got my official place, I was 18, but I left at 15, moved in with my boyfriend, came back, went out again to Hollywood, lived with people, but I got my own place at 18 in Hollywood off of the Sunset Strip. So I got my first place, my first punk rock boyfriend. This was the end of the 70s. We lived off the Sunset Strip, which was completely deserted at that point. And, um, you know, there was a few clubs that were having punk rock bands. But it was deserted. I used to stand there and say, what happened to everyone? What happened to the entertainment business? Where did everybody go? It, it was literally like tumbleweeds were floating by. I literally thought, because it was the end of the 70s, that everyone had done so much coke in the entertainment industry that they were all in rehab you could there was nothing happening there was you, record companies didn't know what to do with the music blockbuster movies weren't coming out it was just dead and the only thing that was happening that i could see was punk rock so yeah it was it was deserted and basically all that was there was us punk rockers running around can you tell me a, a little bit about did that take a while before like how what was the rock bottom what what was it? Yeah, there was a lot of heroin and heroin addiction. And I, my boyfriend and I, who's no longer with us, sadly, we were living above a bar in Hollywood. And it was constant drugs. There's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of people on drugs. Our house was a drug palace. And we almost died there. Heroin was my drug of choice. I, and I did that alcoholically. And alcohol was something I drank between shots of heroin. Her addiction was heroin, not alcohol. And she she differentiated them in such a way that she said, well, alcohol was the means to get to the heroin, but it wasn't actually the alcohol that was her issue. Um, I thought that was interesting because I would think that you could not so easily compartmentalize one certain type of addiction over another, especially if it is alcohol or drugs or something like that. Yeah, that was interesting. I actually am remembering part of the conversation we had with her. And, and if I'm remembering right, the first time she did heroin, which is oftentimes described by, I've heard from a lot of people, they might have you know, like used speed, methamphetamine, alcohol, weed, whatever it is, cocaine. But then they discover the power of an opioid, especially heroin, and then that's like, that is it. I had to get out. I, I had to get out because I was going to die. And it was just awful. There was nothing fun about it anymore. The party had been over for a very long time. And I didn't know who I was anymore. I felt 
like my soul had just been sucked out of me. I felt dead inside. And at one point, I, I sort of sat at the top of the stairs there, you know, above the bar. There was this crazy staircase that took you upstairs. And I just sat at the top thinking, you know, I used to wake up excited in the morning. What happened to that girl? And um, it was sort of a, a, a mini a mini spiritual moment, you know. And the next day, out of nowhere, people just started showing up to help, to take me to meetings, to get me out of there. And some friends of mine, people that took me to my first meetings are no longer here because they died of drug, or of drug addiction. So it's, it's like that. But people t- started taking me to meetings to just try to get me out. And I drove away from Hollywood. I drove to my brother's house 30 miles away, the West Valley, and just said, okay, I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to heal. I have to get out of this. I can't live like this. This is not, this is not the life I wanted, especially when I knew that there was a way to do it. Do you um, remember if you did anything totally dangerous or were you so far gone that you weren't really conscious about what was happening around you? Oh no, I did dangerous things. I remember. <laughs> I did fun things, but I had, again, I had a great time, but when it got dark, it got dark. I remember being on the 90 freeway coming back from Long Beach after buying a large amount of heroin. And also some cocaine. And literally in the fast lane driving, I was shooting cocaine into my arm. That's dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) I could have killed somebody or many people. Yeah. That's just one of many. I mean, I overdosed a lot. I remember waking up, being in bathtubs covered in ice and having my boyfriend reviving me, yelling. I remember hearing this voice from a long, like this tiny voice, as if I was in this tunnel. And then the voice got louder and louder. And and I finally woke up, and I'd been not breathing. Wow. How long, how yeah. many times had that happened before the top of the stairs? About three. Wow. Yeah, I was a mess. I was a mess. You know, you get in deep. And especially when you start, it's that thing. It's like, it's once you, okay, so I did this. So I picked up a needle. I added a needle to my repertoire, which opened up a whole other dangerous world. Not only is it bad or dangerous or you can get A's or you can get hep C, which I got none of. I don't know how that happened because I lost a lot of friends to both of those things from using needles. And, but I was, also addicted to the needle that's a whole other addiction on its own mm-hmm. and and the things that came as a result of it are scary overdosing um not be not being able to find a clean needle it just is this whole other dimension of of darkness when you started going to aa and you were seeking help, were the people around you supportive or were you faced with the same sort of group of users or people who either enabled you or gave you a tough time? Well, it's, it's, it's a bit of both because when I got to, when I got to 
the, when I got to meetings and things like that, people, people would say, okay, you need to abstain from all drugs and alcohol. And I would think and say, yeah, but alcohol was never a problem for me. I never, people used to look at me and I'd have my drink half full and they would say, are you going to finish that? So I was probably my own worst enemy. Did I have friends? Yeah, they were. It wasn't even that. Okay, here's a great story. This is this is the perfect story that encapsulates exactly what you're talking about. So when I drove to Woodland Hills to get away from everything, get away from the whole Hollywood lifestyle, I had been there two weeks. I had two weeks clean and sober. I get a call from my friends who are in this famous, famous rock band and they said we're we're coming over we want to pick you up we have a limo blah 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 and I said you know what I'm sober I I want to but I can't and they said oh so are we and I said okay but I can't they were in Hollywood I was in close to Calabasas basically and then I hung up the phone and then about an hour later I get a phone call and it's the limo driver. He's saying, I'm a block away and I'm coming to get you. And I said, what? And he showed up at my door and I said, where are the guys? He said, oh, they're back at the hotel on the, on the strip. And I, I asked him, I said, are they, are they, are they really clean and sober? He said, well, they're doing drugs, but they're not drinking. And at that point I was already in the limo, went to the hotel I don't know what I was thinking, except I didn't, I still didn't know a new way of life. I was in that hallway where I didn't, I didn't know how to live clean and sober. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any history in the AA community at all. And I, I, I just didn't know how to, I didn't have any tools for living, basically. And, and so the only thing that came very natural to me was hanging out with my friends and partying. So I went back to the hotel. We partied for like two weeks. The limo dropped me off. And I was just a wreck again. It was things like that. That wasn't the only time, but a lot of that stuff happened. People would send car services, limos. And uh, eventually I just had to, I had to check in somewhere where I was safe from all that. The other thing I found really interesting was that in her interest, her want to, suddenly she's sitting there and she just says, wait, what happened to me? You know, where did that girl go? You know, at the top of the stairs when she mentioned that, I was like, interesting that it just sort of happened with almost like a flip of the switch. And then literally the next day, people came to help her. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And then I thought um, how unfortunate it was for her to have, you know, two weeks or whatever it was of sobriety and then get, you know, sort of ambushed by the rock band um, and then just, you know, taken back and she relapsed and then it took her you know, getting away from them again to return to her sobriety. So she, she did well to get back up on the horse that quickly. Man, I've heard of people getting lost. You know, they have a good run at sobriety. They sort of get ambushed in other kinds of ways, get back into the scene of using, and they don't really reemerge for several years later. Yeah. So, uh, something about her. She has some real inner strength. When I was out there drinking and using, slowly getting to the bottom, the bottom, the bo bottom of the bottom, I would be like, oh my God, who am I? I kept, I became unrecognizable to myself in the, the worst way, you know, 
because things were happening to me. And I'd be like, these things don't happen to me. This doesn't happen to me. But they were happening to me. And I was slowly making these bad decisions that put me in that place. And then when I, I got sober, things started happening to me that were unrecognizable in the greatest way. And I'd be like, who am I? Who am I? You know, like, I'd quit smoking. I'd quit. I'd take care of myself. I'd be exercising. I was doing these jobs, like sober companion jobs. I didn't. I never thought that it was something I'd want to do. I had never even thought of the idea. I didn't know what she did for a living. Like her job now is a sober partner. You know, like if if a, a famous rock band is going to go on tour, you know, and there are a number of them that did get sober over the years, they would hire her to be their companion. Really? You know, I think that's very fascinating if you're a famous rocker who's known for craziness and you're getting ready to go on the road and you just want to maintain your sobriety, you will hire a sober companion like this woman who who knows the world, who knows all the rockers also, to come and just be their companion on the tour so that they can, you know, maintain their sobriety. I, I thought that was a really fascinating thing. I'd never heard about that before. I, I actually have not heard about that myself. So I started doing things that were completely out of my comfort zone, basically, which is, that is the way to a good life, is leaving your comfort zone, you know, going to, getting out of your comfort zone to do good things. Something, when when I was drinking and using, I wouldn't leave my comfort zone. As a matter of fact, I would go, I would hang out with lower companions, is what they call it, because I felt comfortable or nothing challenged me say if you were running your own recovery program what would you do differently or how would you handle something if 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 there is anything okay let's say i was running a sober living i would make sure that the girls that live there because it would just be for women I, i wouldn't want i wouldn't mix the two sexes that's for sure now when people are just fresh off drugs and alcohol and they're raw and craving everything, especially sex. That's not a good idea. So I'd have the women, I would have them go to meetings and and take commitments because commitments are what saved my life and gave me a life because I had to show up. Otherwise, I'd be like, yeah, no one's going to miss me. And I showed up. And, and I, so they'd have to have commitments, at least three commitments in three different meetings. They'd have to go to meetings. And they'd have to be working the steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd have a couple of house meetings a week at the house. And um, that, would, that, would, that would be the main thing that I would, I would do. Uh, what was the best and the worst part of that whole process of recovery? God, well, the best part was getting myself back and the best part, because, okay, step two talks about we are restored to sanity. I can't say I was restored. I can say I was introduced to it because I grew up in a very crazy household. It was crazy. The fire truck was always there or the subpoena server or the ambulance or it was nonstop. This is what I grew up in. The worst thing is I met so many predators. As a woman, oh, my God, there were so many. And I could... I could tell you stories and some of them are funny and some of them are scary, but you know, 
And that it was nobody's fault except maybe my own because I didn't hear stick with the women, stick with the women, stick with the women because I was still looking for a guy to fix me or rescue me or save me. She really has sort of evolved in her recovery in, in, a, in so many ways. I could just mm-hmm. hear bits and pieces of that. You know, where she started in recovery to where she's at now and that ability to see beyond just herself. And I know I think she made reference to the idea of like addiction being self-centering. And it is. Like you cannot be a good addict. The only way you can be a good addict is you have to be self-centered. It's just that kind of thing. They run hand in hand. I've never met an addict that's not self-centered. Mm-hmm. And then as they evolve into the recovery, eventually that veil can be lifted. And then you really hear about who they actually are deep down and who they can become. My life today doesn't, I, I look nothing like I'd ever thought. I'm traveling for work and I'm helping people with my work. And I, and I love that. I love that in my life. And I want to do it more. And even with this pandemic, I was the other day saying, if I didn't have two people in my life that had compromised immune systems, I might, if not be on the front lines, be somewhere close. Because I really want to help. What kind of advice would you have for someone listening who is in the place where they might be thinking, God, you know, I, I need to have help, but I don't have anybody to help me? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, first of all, I would preface it by saying there would be no Alcoholics Anonymous if people didn't ask for help. There would be no program. And if you're in trouble and you, you hate your life and you, you feel stuck and, you, and you're afraid, ask for help. Go on the internet, find a number. Central office, there's, there's a central office in every city of Alcoholics Anonymous call and ask for help. I've just seen a lot of miracles and a lot of magic in this program. And um, I'm just really grateful. I'm grateful that I'm one of the lucky ones. You're amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much to the guests of the California Addiction Diary series for sharing their stories with us. Today's interview was conducted by director and filmmaker Steve Balderson with editing by Jimmy Cohen. To learn more about Steve's work, visit dikenga.com. That's D-I-K-E-N-G-A.com. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools including where to find a rehab center near you. Thanks for listening.